you should not automatically assume that drug-eluting stents are best for all of your patients who need intervention. This came out of a talk here in San Diego given by Mark Riesman from the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. He was reviewing the rapidly changing field of interventional cardiology and among other topics he also discussed the indications for PFO closure which he told this ACP conference is also not by any means clear or obvious. After his talk I asked him first about drug-eluting stents where the latest challenge clinicians are facing seems to be the increase of late stent thrombosis. Well, late stent thrombosis is something that we hadn't traditionally seen uh, with the bare metal stents, and obviously uh, we'd like to uh, attempt at best to understand it and ultimately uh, eradicate the, the incidence of it to the level which we believe is acceptable. Uh, at present, the overall mortality and infarction rate between whether it be bare metal stents or uh, drug-eluting stents is essentially the same. But in fact, the threat of the slave thrombosis has really placed quite a uh, damper on the, um, the use of drug-eluting stents and frankly has made us uh, quite a bit more uh, focused on the type of patient we choose and, um, and to really understand the general medical condition of the patient, whether they could tolerate uh, longer-term Plavix. Now, it's all about endothelialization, isn't it? Can you tell me what's happening in the, in the drug-eluting stents that's, that's making the whole thing go wrong? Well, there's some, there's some data that's suggestive that endothelialization may not be as comprehensive or as broad as um, we see with bare metal stents. We know that the late loss with bare metal stent or the coverage of the stents is usually in the range of about, of a, about a millimeter. Um, and with the drug-eluting stents, we could have late loss reduced or the, the scarring reduced to 0.1 to 0.3 millimeters. And so you could obviously see situations where um, the, uh, there might not be complete coverage of the metal struts and they may maintain exp to be exposed and ultimately create a nidus for platelets uh, to uh, adhere. And indeed clopidogrel is now being recommended for one year. Yes. What is the effect for the doctor referring patients for this sort of intervention in recommending a patient whether to go for a bare metal stent or a drug-eluting stent? And of course, which type of drug-eluting stent? Well, the type probably plays less of a role, but um, drug-eluting stents still are um, really significant uh, evolution or a revolution in our ability to revascularize patients. But like anything else, uh, it, it appears we have to pay a small, albeit important price, uh, and one that you know, confers both emotional and other issues, both for the physician and the patient, if there's a concern of late thrombosis. But I think um, as we continue to iterate the stents that we'll be able to address the uh, issue of late thrombosis. And I think over time, um, our data will uh, further support the direction that we need to go in. Could I ask you now about uh, avoiding strokes and also about avoiding migraines? Because you've been delivering some very fascinating information here in San Diego about PFO closure, the indications for it, and, and, and what you should do. What's your feeling about PFO closure? It's a big subject, of course. Well, PFO closure obviously is, is uh, something that um, we've done a lot of research on and really we are fundamentally focused right now on creating a, um, a foundation of evidence-based medicine for PFL closure in both stroke and in migraine. In both areas, it's clear that there's a lot of retrospective data, single-center data, small group studies, subgroup studies that imply 
that there is relationships, that there is benefit. But the reality is that we need uh, clear-cut randomized studies, both in stroke and in migraine, to really adjudicate the necessity of an uh, invasive procedure. Now, I know you're doing some of those studies at the moment in your center, but the clinician facing a patient with symptoms right now, what might be your recommendations? Well, my first recommendation is to try to enroll the patient in a study, and my second recommendation is if the patient is not applicable for a study, to give them broad uh, consent information uh, as to the risks and the benefits of the various uh, techniques, whether it be medical or uh, interventional. So we spend an enormous amount of energy and time with our patients, frankly, to educate them on the choices because ultimately it's theirs. When there's no real data, uh, obviously a doctor could guide them but, uh, or even put you know, his foot on their back a little bit and just you know, push them in one direction or other. But ultimately, we believe that the best uh, patient is a fully, um, a fully uh, informed patient and ultimately let them make the decision. Remember, most of these patients are young. They're usually in their 40s and 50s, and so by virtue of that, um, they are often very well educated, internet savvy, and so it's, it's a pleasure. We could, we could just spend the time and, and they, 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 we walk through it with them. What about the technology? Is it up to it? Because you've pointed out here in San Diego that a PFO isn't necessarily always a textbook case. Right. The technologies are, are improving, but they, they continue to iterate. Um, the optimal technology is one that leaves as, as little behind in the heart as possible since these are often young patients. And there are technologies that are either bioabsorbable, there are welding technologies, technologies that have that leave very little material on one side of the heart or the other. So one of the, within the context of my recommendation is my belief that at present we probably do not have a perfect technology and because this is a permanent implant, I think it behooves us to make sure that we allow those patients to understand those issues. And finally, I must ask you about the MIST study. This was an exciting and very interesting study that was aiming to reduce migraine. What do you make of that study and are there any clinical implications for ordinary doctors? Well, the, the MIST study, I think, uh, basically gave us a little bit more of a, uh, a window on the potential relationship. The two fascinating parts of the MIST study for me was that uh, there was such a high incidence of large PFOs in migraine uh, patients, um, which I would not have suspected uh, routinely. And number two was that uh, it continued to, albeit lightly, but somewhat support the relationship. I think the the results, which were not as dramatic as I had hoped, frankly, uh, are probably uh, indicative of the ubiquitous nature of migraine headache, and not all migraines are probably created equal. And the ones that I closed where the patients got better may not be the same type of migraines as other patients that were selected in these trials, somewhat like hypertension uh, response to various meds depending on the etiology. And the bottom line for doctors looking at PFO closure in a few words? Uh, the bottom line right now is uh, keep your eyes open, try to enroll your patients in investigational studies and, um, and pay close attention to these patients because something really is going on and we need to make sure we understand it. That was Mark Reisman from the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle talking to me here at the Internal Medicine 2007 conference of the American College of Physicians being held in San Diego. For the Audio Journal of Global Health Issues, I'm Peter Goodwin.